evening scripture reading is from 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. So yesterday, uh, I get a text from Kelly Coleman, and I ask her if any story I share tonight, I ask for permission. <clears throat> and uh, she says, I'm watching uh, the, the riots in Charlottesville, and a family member is, uh, was very close to the place where the car uh, ran into the crowd, was able to get out of the way. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just really scared. So we talked, we went back and forth a couple times and just asked her what her week had been. She said that she has two sisters who live near Charlottesville, and she said both of them this past week uh, had someone uh, call them the N-word, uh, one when they were uh, stepping out of church. A car drove by and, and yelled at them. And then um, uh, Chantel and her sister had the same thing happen this week in Knoxville. So um, there is a lot of anxiety, fear, and violence in our world today. Uh, one of the popes talked about a culture of death and it does seem that there's, there's this increasing disrespect of, of life, uh, willingness to express hatred. Um, it's kind of an absurd story I saw. You probably heard of it where a, a beautiful young high school girl dating a young man with depression uh, decided to talk him into suicide through texting. And uh, she did, and he did. Um, I don't know how we I don't know how we get here. Um, I think the culture of death can touch us in lots of different ways. For many of us today, it's race. It could be how our culture deals with the weakest members, the youngest children, the most vulnerable, the elderly, the environment. Um, it's it's where we're living. I, I went over to Overcoming Believers Church today just to support my brother and, and our people over there, and, and uh, we had a good service there. And, and uh, on the way out, this um, lovely young lady, Elisa, I've come to know her. She heads up their security, and she, she um, not only says goodbye, she walks me to my car, which was four blocks away, puts me into the car, waits till I leave, and then moves on. And I realize, one, she has a gun. And two, that they have had to install a um, pretty rigorous security program um, for, for their services. And that that was why she walked me, uh, walked me away. So one of the questions that I think we need to, to be wrestling with is, how do we relate to a culture of death? Um, how do we relate to a culture where anxiety and violence and hatred are so strong. Well, that is really 
what Peter is going to guide us through in the next part of his letter. Um, Today we have the introduction to what will basically be a four-part series on how the church is to relate to the culture, how the church is to relate to uh, the city. And here he just kind of lays out a couple of general principles. Um, And you might begin just by kind of making this a little more practical. Where, Where are you touching the culture of death? Um, where is it impinging upon your reality? And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be that it, something happened to you, but I, I do think when you begin to care for people and things happen to them that the culture of death sort of seeps into your, your own, own life. So you might kind of keep that in mind. Where where is life in this society kind of bumped up against you and and, and bruised you uh, recently? Because that's what was happening to the early Christians. They very much lived in a culture of of death. And Peter's trying to encourage them, tell them a little bit about how they can thrive in it. And he begins, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you, let's just stop there for a minute, Um, Before he can go any farther, he's got to get in the word beloved. I think one of the things that's so hard about this journey with race, and Chantel and I have met quite regularly and talked about some things, and so have Kelly and I, and so have Jeanette and I, and I'm just learning a lot. And I just can't imagine walking down the streets of Knoxville as a woman, and a man in a car driving up and calling me that word and, and threatening violence. Um, and I, I talked to one friend today, and, and I asked him, well, how was the weekend for you? And they said, they're a person of color, and they said, what do you mean? I said, well, what? She, she said, oh, no, this is the way it always is. This is my world. You don't understand I clearly don't understand. I think there are other ways, too, where the culture of death can make you feel like you're not worth much. So the first thing Peter wants us to remember if we're going to flourish and thrive in this culture and not succumb, and really I think that's part of what he's trying to do here because that's what's hard, right? Gandhi said that a community founded on on hatred can never be a loving community. And, and to me, that's what worries me about our responses is we, we seem to think that the way you respond to hate is by hating. And that, that's not the way of Christ. It's, it doesn't witness to anything. It doesn't go anywhere. So that can't be the answer. But one of the first things that I think the Lord wants us to think about is that you're beloved, that you're loved by him. He chose you before the dawn of time. And no matter what anybody says to you, you're beloved. You are beloved. 
Then he uses two words that have come up a lot. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And that's maybe the, the, the primary metaphor in the book of First Peter for who we are as believers. It's a word that goes way back to Abraham. He was a sojourner in, in, in uh, Palestine. It goes into Exodus. Israelites were sojourners in Israel, or rather in, in Egypt. Jesus was the ultimate sojourner. He came into this world and they knew him not. When you became a follower of Christ, if that's happened in your life, you embraced a new way of living. You, Peter says you were born again to a living hope. You, you, you were created anew to a new way of life and entered a new kingdom with a new set of values. And when that happened, you, from that point on, became estranged from the culture around you. Conversion leads to estrangement from this kingdom. It's true if you're a lawyer, it's true if you're a psychotherapist, it's true if you're a business person, it's true if you're a social worker, it's true if you're a stay-at-home mom. That's the reality, is estrangement, tension. I don't think we want to demonize the culture, but we also have to be honest. The Bible does say that there are extraordinarily dark powers at work in the culture around us. That's why the metaphor of darkness is so often used, and that's something that God has, has lifted us out of. And so if you feel tension living in this world, you're normal. If, if, if you just look at what happened this weekend or, or anything else where the culture of death is impending upon you, and, and you're just thinking, this shouldn't be this way. Why does this happen? Will it ever change? There's a tension. It shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't happen. It's probably never going to totally change. And, I, you know, that's something I struggle with a lot. And you're, you're going to hear a lot of me stumbling over my words tonight. I just, I, just, I just have not known exactly what to say. Because there are parts of the Bible that really motivate us to go out and work for justice and see the kingdom of God coming on earth. And Jesus teaches these wonderful parables about the mustard seed growing, and Isaiah has these great passages of the reign of God coming and sharing. But then there are other books like First Peter that, that basically remind us that don't put all your hope in that. It's a hard tension. And as a congregation who gives a lot to the community and will continue to do a lot to make this community a better place, that's a hard tension. And, and maybe the only truth to come from it is, don't put your hopes in that. Do the best you can. Jeremiah 29, 7. Do the best you can, but you are really going to burn out if you put all your hope in racism going away in your lifetime. I hope it does. I'm not encouraged. So Peter kind of names the tension. We live in a society, a culture of death, and there will be a tension. Now, he gives two commands about what we should try to do as we live in this society around us. And the first he says, 
I want you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And he's saying basically, don't live like you used to live. Don't go back to the natural desires. Now, we could preach a whole sermon on that. We could talk a lot about that. But given what happened yesterday, I, I, just, I just want to talk about how we respond to hate. The natural response to hate is hate. That does not mark us as distinct or holy as the people of God. And and Peter shows a better way. He shows a harder way than hate. And we might call it the way of nonviolence. Remember, Peter knows this from firsthand experience. When Jesus was being attacked, what does he do? He takes out the sword. He's ready to cut off the guy's ear. Peter says, or God, Jesus has put it away. And Peter was transformed from a revolutionary to a man of peace. And 1 Peter is actually filled with this approach towards people who hate us. He says, even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart's regard, the Lord is holy. And he says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So one of the ways that we live redemptively in a culture of death is by loving our enemy. Turning the other cheek, choosing to suffer rather than to hit back. Now, I understand and we're going to hit this heavy in the next three weeks. Peter's culture was very different than our culture. We have opportunities to respond that they didn't have. I understand that. We're going to work real hard to parse all that out. But don't overlook what Peter's saying here. Is that sometimes the most subversive thing you can do to an oppressive person or system is not hate them back. Man, that's hard. I was doing some study. I was on vacation last week, and I was heading up, and I packed my briefcase full of uh, articles that I was reading to prepare for something we're going to uh, come up against. And I read one article where the guy took a different position than I take on an issue. And for a moment, I hated him. I just, just despised him. Because we disagree on a legitimate Bible interpretation. See, this stuff's so deep in all of our hearts, right? Janetta was so honest and so candid. I mean, it's not just the white supremacists that do this. We do it. And that's really where we ought to be, be looking. Nonviolence can be so powerful. Uh, Tuesday night, the Beck Cultural Center had a wonderful fundraiser over at Tennessee Theater. Beck is the the Center for African American History and Legacy in Knoxville, and they were showing a movie about racism. And uh, Becky uh, Hancock runs the Tennessee, and she came up to me, and we, I was there with DJ um, and uh, some some fellows and a number of you, 
And Becky mentioned, she said, because the room was filled about 80%, and most of the people there were black. And she said, did you know that until 1963, no black people could come into the Tennessee? And a number of the people in the room were old enough to remember that. And then I think I said, well, how did it happen? And she said, well, they showed the film To Kill a Mockingbird. And at that point, Knoxville's history in this is, is very interesting, and I don't know it as well as I should. Marie Alcorn knows it much better. But Knoxville College and, and some folks had already begun to practice some gentle steps of nonviolence in the community. And when that film was shown, some of the students went to the board of the theater and just said, look. <laughs> and that was the last time the theater was ever desegregated. And that came out of a patient, nonviolent approach of these students. So nonviolence, loving our enemy, can be very, very powerful. One writer who, uh, who wrote on this says, Peter's calling his readers to follow in the footsteps of the crucified Messiah and to refuse to take part in the automatism of revenge and to break the vicious circle of violence by suffering violence. This is a call to struggle against the politics of violence in the name of the politics of the crucified Messiah. Worship of a crucified God is an eminently political act that subverts the politics of domination at its very core. So Peter didn't have the opportunity to... Um, to write, to speak, to vote, to march. We do. Of course, we should take advantage of those freedoms. But when you blog, blog in love, if you march, march in love. If you write a letter somewhere, put something on Facebook, do it in love. We're really not providing much of a witness at all if we respond to anyone in hate. And this is true whether that person is conservative or liberal, rich or poor, white or black, old or young. Any time that hate fuels our discourse, it is wrong. Any time. There's no exception. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Still, look at the example of Christ. It's done in love. And I really want you to think about this. I want you to think about the way you're speaking and writing about the issues of our day and ask yourself honestly, am I responding to hate with hate? Peter says, put away the passions, the wage against the soul. Well, Peter's second command regarding Howard to relate to, to culture says this. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of your visitation. Here's a little bit of the background. We'll go into this more in future weeks. The Roman aristocracy was weak at this point, And they were very threatened by new religions that were coming into the empire, particularly Christianity, a lot of people were converting to those religions. And women were leading the way. And in the Roman mindset, a woman was bound to follow the God of her husband. 
And so when that started to shift, they felt that they were defying the gods of Rome, and they felt that that was one of the reasons Rome was in decline. It's one of the reasons why the persecutions broke out. Christian doctrine, too, was also very confusing to them. They heard about a love feast or a Lord's Supper, and, and, and they thought that Christians were, were having cannibalism or, or orgies. And you look at the literature from the first centuries, there was just all sorts of misunderstandings about the church, high, high suspicion of the church. And so uh, Paul says, or Peter, Peter, Peter says, look, I want you to live honorably before your neighbor. I, I want you to, the word means a, a virtuous or a lovely life, or a beautiful life. I want you to live a beautiful life before your na- neighbor so that they can glorify God. His whole goal is, is witness. And we could talk, you know, about what that might look like in the realm of work or generosity or hospitality or you know, many other things, but Given what's going on this weekend, I thought we might just end by thinking a moment about what does it mean for us to live honorably before our neighbors in terms of race? And um, I guess we'll start with the obvious. Let's begin with good theology. Uh, Father James Martin, a very wise and gentle spiritual guide, posted this on his Facebook page this morning. It will sound obvious to you, but let's just say it. How many white supremacists who were in Charlottesville consider themselves Christian? Probably most. But supremacy is the precise opposite of Jesus' message. In the Gospels, Jesus asks us to love one another, to place others' needs before our own, even to die for one another. The idea of supremacy is absurd to Jesus. Indeed, Jesus tells us explicitly that we are never to lord power over others, and that we are to be one another's servants. The idea that anyone is less than because of his or her race is likewise antithetical to Jesus' message. For example, in his day, the Samaritans were avoided, despised, and shunned. Yet Jesus not only speaks to a Samaritan, reveals his divinity to her, but he makes her the hero of one of his best-known parables. He even encounters a Roman centurion, someone completely outside of his religion, who speaks with him, heals a servant, and praises his faith. So for Jesus, there's no us in them. No one should be made by the community into an other. There's only us. More basically, racism goes against everything that Jesus taught. It promotes hatred, not love, anger, not compassion, vengeance, not mercy. It's a sin. So Christian white supremacist is an oxymoron. Every time you shout white power, you might as well be shouting crucify him. And any time you lift your hand in a Nazi salute, you might as well be lifting your hand to nail Jesus to the cross. And lest you miss the point, Your Savior is Jewish. So we start there with a good theology of race. And the next thing that we do is, in this little new society where we're all one in Christ, we try to love and listen to each other well. I I didn't sleep well last night because I, I texted Kelly back I gave her some advice that sounded kind of clunky and white and pastoral in middle age. <laughs> and she didn't respond. When my kids do that to me, I know, uh-oh, <laughs> I crossed the line. So I call her, no response. I call her roommate, Aaron. She's not there, no response. I call Jill. Do you know where Kelly is? No response. <laughs> Kelly would gone to bed. She was fine. Um, 
But I just realized, even after about five years of having these conversations, I still miss you. It's just so hard. And so one of the things that I think we can do as we walk through this is just model, whether it's black, white, male, female, poor, rich, left, white, whatever it is, just model a community where we hang in there and don't hate. And, you know, the thing that breaks my heart more than anything else is when somebody quits. I, I can handle about anything, but when somebody says, I'm just not going to go to church with them because they're fill it, fill it in, whatever it is, because they, oh, that just kills me. That's all we've got, folks, is our ability to hang together by the blood of the cross. That's all we got. And then the, the last thing I think we can do with this is, you know, Turner and I were talking about this earlier, and he reminded me that Peter uh, was a racist. <laughs> Remember in the book of Acts? Peter thought the gospel should only go to the Gentiles, and then the Lord comes after him in a dream. And it wasn't until the Lord got a hold of Peter, spirit-filled Peter, that Peter changed. And I guess, and I don't want to be too dark, I'm just not real hopeful about American culture right now. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know, when you're 30, 35, oh, maybe 25, 30, I was really up for changing the world. I had bumper stickers. <laughs> Man, it was going to be good. I don't know. It, it just... It, Maybe it's a bad night. I just think it seems like it's getting worse. But I've got a lot of hope for us. I've got a lot of hope for the people of God. Because of the cross and because of God's spirit. I I don't have much hope for Washington. I don't care what guy's in the White House. I'm sorry. I'm just not very hopeful. I've got hope for you. I've seen us try really hard. I've seen us try really hard to do this. And that's why I'm hopeful. Let's pray.